Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments. Now, this is a very important program. It's one that we um, offer once a year, um, and it's it's so important because most of most people who are undergoing cancer treatments often are talking about many other treatment side effects or issues that they're coping with and often forget about their eye and vision changes. And so this is the program that you're going to hear about all of those things. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. Um, and um, because of that collaboration, we have so many of you on the call today. We have over 436 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from all different areas, rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we have international participants from Australia, Canada, Germany, India, Indonesia, Nigeria, Portugal, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call, actually, or quite a global call. Today's program is supported by the Aline Roos Memorial Trust, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and for the support of this topic and this program now for many years. We have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Miguel Matarin. Dr. Matarin is um, with the Duke Eye Center. He's professor of ophthalmology, director Duke Center for Ophthalmic Oncology. Um, and Dr. Matter is going to present to you on the ophthalmology assessment and care before and after treatment, recognizing changes in vision, field of vision, floaters, and flashing lights, what to do, how eye products may help you cope with eye and vision changes, and guidelines for eye examinations, checkups, and low vision rehabilitation. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Matterin. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to share this conference call with so many patients from all over the world. Um, it's a privilege for me to be talking today. So I, I would like to um, to start by um, by saying how cancer can affect the eye, and there are different ways that this can happen. Um, there is a possibility of the tumors or the cancer can start in the eye. Uh, there is a possibility that um, a systemic cancer uh, can metastasize to the eye. And finally, uh, treatment uh, for either uh, eye cancer or treatment for other cancers, for systemic cancers, can affect the eye. The topic today is how, um, in general, um, cancer treatment can affect the eye. Um, and uh, it has been a tremendous, or it's been going on, uh, a tremendous change in uh, systemic cancer care. And for for several years now, um, we we are aware, and when I say we, as um, ocular oncologists, uh, ophthalmologists, and uh, medical oncologists, uh, we are all aware that um, the new treatments can affect the eye. So uh, starting with the, maybe the more, more traditional 
or known treatment um, radiation when uh, there is, um, again, uh, there is um, a brain tumor or when there is a tumor in the eye, um, radiation can cause some uh, toxicity to the eyes. If the eye is not the primary organ that is receiving the radiation, uh, most of the time the radiation side effects are temporary. As an example, if, um, if the patient has some type of lymphoma or other uh, brain tumor and receives radiation, yes, um, there can be some swelling of um, the eyelid or even the eyes, and, but most of the time this is temporary and it um, resolves by itself. So we, what we do is we treat um, the, mainly the symptoms. Um, now, there is, for, for cancer treatment in general, um, when there is uh, either metastatic disease, uh, patients can receive traditional chemotherapy or they can, or patients can have uh, immunotherapy or they can have targeted therapy. Um, and this is when um, everything, um, I would say, new uh, started a few years ago. Traditional chemotherapy can cause mainly uh, dry eyes, uh, some can cause cataract, um, some can cause floaters, which is, um, unless there is um, a real damage to the eye in general, this is self-control. Uh, with the new therapies, and I'm talking about immunotherapy or targeted therapy, there is a whole range of uh, side effects that can happen to the eye. Now, I please ask the audience not to think always the worst. Um, you know, any person, when, when a person has, um, and this is something that I usually like to tell patients, when someone has a headache, we don't go straight to a MRI or a CT scan. So please, I'm asking everyone not to think the worst, um, the worst scenario. So having said that, um, the side effects on the eye can be light, can be like um, dry eye, and patients can see these like a blurry vision or, or um, foreign body sensation. And from that uh, limited, um, non, most of the time non-dangerous situation to vision loss, there is a range of situations or side effects from immunotherapy or target therapy that can happen. What we tell patients in, in medical oncologists are becoming more and more aware of this is um, depending on the, on the cancer, depending on the medicine they're taking, to have a low threshold to have a consultation with the eye doctor. And why is that? Because um, it is not unusual that the patient starts with symptoms uh, we the patient is referred immediately to the uh, to the ophthalmologist uh, and we perform the exam and everything is normal and 24 to 48 hours later uh, the patient can have a serious visual loss so uh, i think that the um the taking home point at least for my presentation today is as follow um most of the time most of the time the side effects on the eye are non-dangerous. However, if there, there are no sudden symptoms or if there is a dramatic change in vision, I, we always tell the patients to have a low threshold 
to come back to the clinic, to go to the emergency room, to have an eye exam to uh, prevent or to treat uh, these problems. Understanding that it is um, um, sometimes the drug or the, or the medication that is causing the, the side effects on the eye is keeping the patients alive. So um, that is what I think is the most important uh, taking home message. I don't know if my time is up, but um, uh, so far this is what I, I think is the most important point for everyone. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Matter, and that was really outstanding and just a wonderful way to start the program. And so I appreciate all of your um, presentation, and, and thank you so much. Um, thanks for being on this call today. Um, and our um, our second speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Supportive Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. Um, and Dr. Fleischman is going to be addressing with you an overview of eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments, including causes and risk factors, sharing information about your cancer and its treatment with your eye care provider, the role of the multidisciplinary team, and quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you, everybody, for participating in the call today. This is one of those topics that we just didn't speak about until very recently. And uh, I wanted to echo what was said before and expand on that a little bit. Um, it used to be that people didn't pay much concern about what was happening with their vision. And um, vision is so important. The majority of our, the sensory information that comes into our bodies come in through our eyes. Uh, and we need to preserve that and make sure that it's working as well as possible, especially while we're going through treatment and we're challenged in so many other ways. So over the years, and working in the symptom management area of um, cancer treatment, I've been impressed that people sometimes didn't tell us what was going on until almost it was an emergency. And frankly, I would have preferred, and the people I worked with all these years would have preferred that we found out earlier, uh, because um, these are the kinds of things that um, need a good ophthalmologic examination. Um, and um, lots of experience both in ophthalmology and the, the, the overlap between ophthalmology and, uh, and cancer treatment, be it chemotherapy or radiation therapy or some of the newer biological treatments. So I, I was trying to think about the kinds of things that I've seen over the years, and often uh, people uh, come in very teary. Um, it's easy to think that's because they're sad or depressed, but it's often a result of what's happening locally in the eye as well. Uh, some people say that their eyes are always wet and they're constantly blotting their tears with a um, tissue. Often that's a problem because that's an easy way to get an infection. But most people talk about their eyes being very dry, and there are so many reasons for that. Um, the many of the treatments that we give, not only just chemotherapy or the um, new biological therapies, the immunotherapies, but also practically all of the pain medicines we use, practically all of the anti-nausea medicines that we use are drying to the eye. And it's the kind of thing where if you're using a proper amounts of two or maybe 
three different medicines that have drying as even a minimal or moderate side effect. When you put them all together, it's multiplicative, and they can actually um, seem like your eyes are extremely dry. And that, too, is a problem because um, people often start to rub their eyes, either with their hands that are often not the cleanest um, or with a tissue or a handkerchief that has um, it is not clean, and that also can cause quite a bit of irritation, inflammation, and sometimes even um, infections. Um, many people say, oh, it's just my allergies. And during se the, the seasons in the year when allergies are prominent, sometimes that's the spring for pollen, or the summertime for grasses, or the fall for molds. Um, and if you live in a climate that has four seasons, um, like in many parts of the world, um, that's a sort of a logical conclusion to come to, but it may not be the correct one. Um, and that needs to be addressed by a good eye exam by an ophthalmologist and some discussion between the cancer treatment team and the ophthalmologist of what would be the best to do. Um, sometimes the tear ducts can be affected directly. Um, some kinds of the medicines that we use in cancer are sort of uh, known for that. Some of the taxanes can cause tear duct problems. Many of the hormonal treatments we use, especially in prostate cancer and breast cancer, can cause everything to dry out, the eyes included. And many of the newer, what we call targeted therapies or immunotherapies, can actually cause a kind of inflammation that's not quite in the eye, not quite outside the eye, but right around where the eyelashes are, which can be terribly uncomfortable. That needs to be addressed. Um, sometimes people talk about blurry vision. As I had mentioned before, it's, it's, it's a common side effect um, that often tracks with dryness because the same nerves that affect the hydration of the skin also affect um, the focusing of the lens in the eye so we can see both near and far clearly and everything in between. So we really do think about a, um, a an effect of either the chemotherapies that we're using or the, all the medications that go along with it. Many people just say, I'm not seeing as sharp as I, I usually do, um, and I, I, we try to figure out on, you know, in the office exactly what that is, but often the best thing to do is to make a referral to an ophthalmologist that can um, do a good exam, often with the pupils dilated where everything can be seen um, at the retina as well as through the middle of the eye to make a determination of what's going on. As cancer is a often a um, an illness of um, people growing older, and I say that respectfully, um, often patients are developing cataracts on their own, a cloudy lens that often seems to be worse or seems to be getting worse during treatment. Um, sometimes there's reason for that. Sometimes we find that people are off their usual sort of routine and they realize that there was a cloud over their vision that they never had before. And again, that needs to be addressed um, by um, a good ophthalmologic exam. We do know that some of the steroid medicine can be implicated in that, and we'd like to make sure if that is the case that it is taken care of and um, we know what we're dealing with. I mentioned about um, infection between eyes being too dry or eyes being too moist or rubbing eyes. 
Um, infections during chemotherapy are something we're always concerned about. We like to keep the body as infection-free as possible, be that um, in the mouth, on the skin, um, in the digestive tract, and it's important to make sure that the hygiene we use includes um, our eyes. Um, many patients do complain about loss of lashes and sometimes even loss of eyebrows as they lose the hair on their head as well as the hair over other parts of the body. And we do um, connect that to the uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapies, radiation therapy. Each one is slightly different as far as um, the effects. And that's one of those situations where collaboration between the treatment team and an ophthalmologist knowledgeable about cancer treatment can really help um, determine what's wrong and what to do. Patients who get uh, bone marrow transplants, even stem cell transplants can often um, complain about these things. And again, in perspective of, of the rest of the treatment sometimes, we really need to understand what the problem is and then um, it, most likely these things will take care of themselves as the body recovers from the treatment. Two things that we are really concerned about are uh, a floater that comes and stays, that doesn't just go away. That can be a real medical ophthalmologic emergency. Please tell us if that happens. Or a change in visual field. That's sort of a fancy way of saying that the um, the the uh, extent of our vision to the left, to the right, up and down, seems to be more limited than it used to be. Um, patients sometimes describe that. I've gone from the big screen on, in the movies to a small screen TV. Something is wrong. That also can be a, an ophthalmologic emergency, and we'd like to make sure that there's good cooperation between the uh, cancer treatment team and the ophthalmologist. Often it involves some specialized testing and some scans to make sure that the back of the eye or the nerves going to the back of the eye are not affected by the cancer or the treatment. So when it comes to floaters and visual fields, those are really important symptoms that we need to address immediately without delay. So um, I hope this has been kind of a good overview of the kinds of things that can happen, and I'll turn um, the program back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really comprehensive and really an incredibly um, informative for the participants to be aware of things to bring to their healthcare team. So thank you, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Brian Marr. Dr. Marr is Director, Ophthalmic Oncology Service, Professor, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Medical Center. Um, Department of Ophthalmology, Edward S. Harkness Eye Institute, Columbia University Medical Center, Department of Oncology, Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. And Dr. Marr is going to be presenting on the key role of your eye care provider, discussion of common eye and vision changes, tips to manage dry eyes, watery eyes, itching eyes, blepharitis, loss of eyelashes, cataracts, and eye infections, and the important role of clinical trials. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Marr. Thank you, uh, Carolyn and uh, Dr. Fleischman. Um, so ophthalmologists are kind of unique in the whole healthcare profession because they have certain skills that allow them to assess and, and look at the eye different from other physicians, and they have different tools of doing so. So 
sometimes we get caught up with cancer in the sense that we're focused on the area that the cancer involves and uh, really don't pay attention to the other doctors within different specialties to see if, you know, one, uh, you know, does anything need to be monitored or looked at? And two, um, if something arises, you know, can a regular doctor or your oncologist assess it, or do you need a specialist? And so uh, it's it's very important that the um, ophthalmologist kind of be involved. And so depending on if you're in a large healthcare system where you have multiple specialists and they all have a good communication as in some big centers, or if you're in a different type of private setting where your doctor is involved with the hospital, you may not have direct communication. You may have your own eye care provider that is kind of peripheral in your care. And, and it's really important in that situation to involve them. Uh, for many reasons that we've already talked about, you can get symptoms from some of the treatments. It's nice to have a baseline examination to know if something changed during your cancer, cancer treatment. And so most regular physicians don't have the equipment or the skills to, to properly assess some of the intraocular things that can happen. So the, the, the eye care provider is actually fairly important. It's good to have one that you may know of or maybe involved with your uh, oncologist or just your private um, doctor. I, I think that if you haven't had a chance to just do a routine eye exam with your, with your doctor, uh, it's a good time to do that and just say, hey, you know, recently I've been diagnosed with this cancer and I'm currently on certain medications and I just wanted to check in and make sure that my eyes are doing okay and, and get a baseline examination because that can actually really help um, if something happens during the treatment or if the cancer does affect the eyes that the, the eye care provider can then have more information and help you better. So I think that that kind of advice is, is, a, is a good, you know, back pocket thing to think about and to involve these people because sometimes they're not directly involved in your care and they're more peripheral. Uh, the next thing I'd like to talk about is, well, what do I worry about? What, what is something that I need to, to, to express to my oncologist or to my eye care provider? You know, what are some of these common eye or vision findings? So we talked a little bit about some um, effects that you can have from the environment and medication. So dry eyes is one of the big ones, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, and then vision changes. Um, and so when you think about what's happening to you, if you notice a new symptom, you want to um, do a couple little uh, early checks. You want to say, is it in one eye or in both eyes? And so what I suggest to people is if they're looking at something, they've noticed something changed, kind of try to isolate whether it's in their left eye or the right eye. Maybe cover one eye, look at the same thing, and do it to the other side. And then move your eyes. Uh, if you move the eyes and the, the blurriness or the change stay, moves with your eye, that's a different symptom than if, it, if it's the same if you look right and left. Uh, or if it lags behind like a floater. And I know Dr. Fleischman mentioned about floaters being very important and to identify those because as you move your eye, the floater may lag behind with the movement and not move directly with the eye. And that can give you information. This is a floater. I need to get this evaluated quickly. Um, and the other thing is to kind of think about what is wrong with the vision. Is it blurry? Does it come and go? Is it 
lack of vision where you're missing portions of it? Is it a decreased quality of vision, like you're changing in, in brightness? Or is it a change in color? Is the color vision the same between the eyes? And all, those are all things that you can kind of think about when you notice a change that you can communicate to either to your, uh, your oncologist or your, your eye care provider to really give them uh, information to say, hey, this is a real emergency. You need to come in and get this evaluated. So those are little things that you can do mentally to yourself to say, hey, do I have to worry about this? Do I really have to go in to see the ophthalmologist? Do I have to tell my oncologist? oncologist that this is something, well, yeah, if you have new flashes, if you have loss of peripheral vision, if you have change in color vision, if the symptoms came and don't go away, or but if they come and go um, a lot, sometimes that's not as serious as something that comes suddenly and stays like that. So the type of common things that can happen with, with cancer is, one, you can have some of the new medications can cause changes in the retina, and they would give you those different uh, symptoms as, you know, um, a blind spot that moves when you, when you move your eye or a decrease in color vision um, and things like that, whereas dry eye, you may wake up one morning and your eyes are blurry, and then later down the road, or if you use some drops, it gets better, and then it gets blurry again. And you notice, like, every time you read for long periods of time, your vision gets blurry. Well, that's maybe more related to dry eye than it is to something more serious, like a, a toxicity of a medication or, or a metastatic disease in the eye. So all of those things can kind of really help you gauge the seriousness and gauge how urgently you need to take um, take those symptoms into your doctors or not. So I'm going to change topics into some tips to treat some of these common, common problems that we talked about. So as we mentioned, dry eye can be very troublesome. And if you go to the drugstore and you look at the shelf, there are tons of different medications for dry eye. And I over and over patients say, doctor, what's the best drop to get? How, how do I know which one's best? Well, one, I tell them that if you see all those eye drops, you know that the market for dry eye must be very big. Otherwise, they wouldn't have so many products. So it's a common thing. And number two, as I say that, usually it's not what you use, but how you use it. And a lot of people use rewetting medication, um, I would say, basically wrong, because they wait for their eyes to get dry, and then they put in the, the drops to try to fix that. But your body's smarter than that. Usually when your eye is dry, it already is, is over-watering uh, it, and that's why people's most common symptom of dry eye is tearing. And that's why people say, oh, my eyes are tearing, doctor. They can't be dry. Or um, I have all of this moist feeling all the time. Why, why, why is that? It's usually a reaction from the eyes drying out, becoming damaged, and then um, uh, making tears to overcompensate to it. I equate it to like a room with a fire in it. There's a sprinkler system, and the sprinkler system only comes on when there's a fire. So think of your sprinkler system as your tearing system, and the fire is your dry eye. If you have dry eye that's a fire, the sprinkler system comes in, and you get the tearing. Um, so what you can do to prevent that is you have to prevent the fire. So you use your artificial tears before you actually are tearing or before you notice the symptoms. And the way to do that is to be aware of your environment. First of all, know if you're in a dry uh, area or a humid area. And know if there's a lot of movement of air. So if it's a windy environment, it's worse than um, a 
calm environment and um, your activities. So when people concentrate, they don't quite uh, blink as often. Uh, or if they stare at the computer screen, again, their blink rate goes down, and that can also accelerate uh, dryness. So a lot of people, when they read, they'll get teary eyes because they are concentrating and don't blink as much. Those are the times that you know you have to use the drops more, more frequently. So you have to use them prophylactically and be more um, proactive to that, and that way you prevent the, the damage and you prevent the dryness. So that's a little tip on how to manage some dry eyes, and that goes along with watery eyes because watery eyes basically are dry eyes most of the time. There are exceptions to that, but that's one other thing. And then the other important thing is to differentiate you know, dry eyes from itchy or allergic eyes, and we talked about both of those things. And itchy eyes, if you've ever experienced allergies or where the, the eyes really kind of just are itchy in the corners, you want to take your knuckles and just rub them in there, that is a different sensation than a dry eye where it's more kind of a burny, irritated kind of awareness of the eye. And so that will determine which which drops are best for you. Dry eyes, obviously, you need a, a rewetting type one, and where itchy eyes, where they're, they're really allergic, you want to use an over-the-counter or even a prescription anti-allergy drop. And that's actually very effective if only your eyes are affected. Sometimes systemic anti-allergy medication can treat both of those, but it would only use that if you had uh, systemic symptoms of allergies. The other thing about uh, blepharitis, blepharitis is inflammation of the eyelids. And through different cancer treatments, you can get overturning of different uh, cells on the eyes, and you can get dead skin that kind of accumulates around the eyes, or it can decrease the uh, uh, makeup of the secretions around the lashes, and the eyes can get red and inflamed. One of the easiest ways to kind of help with that is to actually use um, uh, warm water and soap when you're in the shower and actually just uh, run your fingers over your eyelashes with a little bit of baby shampoo or soap and let the water rinse it off, and that will keep the dead skin and oil from accumulating around those areas. And that usually will help. And if that doesn't help, your eye care provider can give you medications or give you some other uh, tips to help with that. Decreasing eye infections, again, the same thing. If you notice a lot of discolored mucus or uh, pain or light sensitivity, again, you need to see an eye care provider quickly because maybe your immune system isn't the, uh, the best or it's overactive or underactive during your cancer treatment. So take those symptoms seriously and go see someone for that. I think I'm almost out of time for that, but again, um, we do have clinical trials that we're running, and usually in those situations, if the medications do involve the eye, they require you to get an evaluation by an ophthalmologist. And the other important thing to say about that is if you're feeling symptoms during a clinical trial, mention it to your uh, trial uh, head of your trial and get in to see an eye care specialist quickly because they can usually adjust the medications or do something to try to mitigate some of those side effects. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Marr. That was really, again, outstanding and wonderful and, and really lots of um, really important, very practical tips for everybody and very important information in terms of your communication with your healthcare team about symptoms that you may notice to be sure to tell them. Um, and questions, I'm sure, for Dr. Marr during the Q&A. So thank you, Dr. Marr. 
Um, we are about to take questions, and so please try to prepare your questions. I just want to say a few words about cancer care services that you can access um, for support, and then we will go right to the questions. So um, start drafting them and thinking what your questions might be. Um, so um, I want to say a few words about cancer care. It's a national um, organization providing uh, counseling services to people living with a cancer and uh, their loved ones and caregivers, partners, family members. We provide those services in different ways. First of all, we do provide practical and financial assistance, and we also have a copay foundation. So we are able to help with some of those practical needs that you all may have. Um, and we also um, provide uh, counseling services with our oncology social workers. They're all trained, master's level trained oncology social workers. And they're able to really talk with you about some of your concerns. And some of those concerns, you all, many of you know them very well, but some of those concerns could include, how do I talk to my children about my cancer? How do I talk to my boss about my cancer? How do I think about it myself? How do I deal with this? How do I cope? And so we offer one-to-one -one counseling on the telephone and online. And we also have a number of different types of modalities for support groups. We offer online support groups. We have at the moment 138 different types of online support groups for different types of cancers, also for the entire age spectrum. So for young adults, middle-aged adults, older adults, um, uh, caregivers, partners, so groups for different people and also for different types of cancers or different situations. And we the same for telephone support groups, depending on which technology you're most comfortable with. And the advantage of both of these groups is you don't have to travel anywhere and that you can actually get that, that help really over the telephone or online. And we also have these workshops that you're participating in today, and we also offer publications. So that's a thumbnail sketch of all the different services you can access from Cancer Care, and you can just call our 800 number or visit our website and ask to speak to a social worker, and we're here to help you. And, um, and if for some reason we do not have a service you need, we will be able to refer you to a place that does. But try us because we have a lot of services to offer you. And with that being said, we now have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. I see some of you are doing this already, but be sure that everybody knows how to do that. And uh, Crystal, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you. And bring all of our speakers on board as well. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Uh, yes, thank you so much, Carolyn. It's excellent. And I would like to ask two questions. I would like to find out. I am a 12-year breast cancer survivor. I had a year of chemotherapy. I had a second cataract formed, and can I get a third cataract if that's possible, if I'm saying that right? I'd also like to know if your corneas can age from having had a year systemic of chemotherapy, and can you also develop glaucoma or macular generation from all the chemotherapy I had, or is that more genetic? I know it's a little bit confusing, but these are similar questions with having aged from all that chemo. The eyes, that's what my concern is from a year. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Stephanie. Those are very important questions. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Marr if you could address these questions to start. Sure. Um, the first question is Can a year of chemotherapy um, 
accelerate, or, or no, the first one was the cataract question. So when when you have a cataract, it's basically the lens that is inside the eye gets um, less clear, and that can be from uh, multiple different reasons. When we remove it, we remove the um, tissue in that lens capsule, and we put a new lens within that then what happens is that lens capsule shrinks down around the new lens and occasionally can get wrinkly on the back. And some people call that a second cataract. When they treat that, they usually use a laser to make a small opening in that shrink-wrapped bag or wrapping around the new lens. And that lets light go through unobstructed. And, and usually, you won't get that to happen again. So having a third cataract is unlikely, so to speak. But it really, you can only have one. The second one is what we call an epi or a, a posterior capsule pacification or the wrinkly bag. And then the third one, I guess you shouldn't, you shouldn't get uh, because it doesn't happen that way. Uh, so that's one answer. And then the other answer is, can your chemotherapies affect glaucoma, uh, more cataracts, uh, macular degeneration? And certain chemotherapies have certain adverse effects on the eye, but usually they're more acute and happen early on. Uh, they may accelerate some aging changes in the eye, but not typically the ones that you asked about. Excellent. Thank you. Wow, thanks. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add anything? or? Well, I was struck by the idea of Stephanie's question as aging in the eye, that we're all aging, <laughs> even without chemotherapy and radiation therapy and all that. And um, the body doesn't go on hold during the treatment time. That's an excellent point. Thank you. That's well said. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and I think we have another telephone question. Is that correct, um, Crystal? Thank you. Our next question comes from Nancy C. Your line is open. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate the program. Uh, can I ask about the effects of glaucoma? I am a, into my third cancer and treating with chemo for the first time, and I have lost vision in one eye, and they tell me it's not coming back. Well, on chemo, can one expect it to be permanent effects, or is it temporary? Well, thank you for answering that question. Um, I'm going to ask Dr. Mar to address it in a general way because, of course, we don't have all the specifics. Um, so, um, Dr. Mar, if you could just kind of address so this in a general way for if, everyone if, on the call. Yes, right. If we look at glaucoma, glaucoma is a, um, a progressive disease that causes visual loss that usually is not reversible. It's due to optic nerve damage, and then once that nerve is damaged, uh, really we haven't found anything great to repair the nerve and make it see again. Now, whether chemotherapy affected the glaucoma in your situation or whether the chemotherapy affected the, the nerve in, in your situation, it's hard to tell. Um, if it was the latter where the chemotherapy caused the toxicity, then you don't know if it's going to happen again, and that's a great question for your eye care provider and your um, oncologist. Uh, but if it was just the glaucoma, then, again, it's not usually, unless the medication has a specific action on the pressure or the, the optic nerve health, um, and that's a good question for both the oncologist and, and your local doctor, uh, then I wouldn't expect it to cause any other uh, adverse effect. Maybe Dr. Fleischman wants to comment as well. Dr. Fleischman, do you want to? Well, I have a question, actually. Does 
can steroids used during cancer treatment be involved in um, in, in the development of uh, either the glaucoma or cataract? Yes, and that's that's a good point. Um, certain certain medications like steroids, if used for long periods of time, can cause high pressure, and that can cause progression of glaucoma. And so if you're on something like that, as Dr. Fleshman's alluding to, then it's a good idea, especially if you're a glaucoma patient, to make that aware or make your eye care glaucoma specialist aware that you're on that medicine. Oh, that's an excellent point. Oh, that's really okay. So remember, everyone on the call, to, to think about those things, be sure. And be sure, I guess, the whole issue of that multidisciplinary team. So, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to say a little bit more about the fact that they really need to work together? It sounds like this is really important, or the, and the patient often is the conduit between the two. Sure. Um, most cancer treatment these days is in two types of environments. One is... Uh, a multidisciplinary, uh, multi-specialty, either hospital or cancer center, where all, many of the specialists work together in the same building. But uh, virtually every um, private office-based oncologist who wor works in a community does not work in isolation and has a network of people that they trust and refer to. And often those people, um, ophthalmologists, endocrinologists, whatever subspecialty, um, have a good knowledge of what happens during cancer treatment and whether the interchange between them is um, on the phone or online or in the common chart um, or even by fax, as some offices still do communicate. The communication between them and the collaboration that they do, whether they're in the same building or on the same chart or not, is what really counts here. Thank you. And Dr. Marr, do you want to add to that? Or is it? No, I just want to reinforce that that's really important, no matter what setting, to try to, as a patient, be, on, be your own advocate to get everyone involved. Excellent. And we have another question for our online participants. Um, so this is the, a question I'm going to, uh, I guess I'll start with Dr. Marr and then, of course, have Dr. Fleischman as well. Given that oncologists are not necessarily incredibly familiar with ophthalmic issues, how do oncologists educate themselves on these issues? Is it incumbent upon patients to transfer any information between their ophthalmologist and oncologist? So that's one of the things that I kind of started in my section to answer is that, yes, it, it's it's important. It's important for both oncologists to know about your symptoms. So as a patient, you need to tell your oncologist, hey, you know, something's different with my vision. Uh, and it's also the responsibility for the oncologist to say, hey, well, now I, I see that these patients are having this type of things. We need an ophthalmologist to see exactly what's going on there. And if it's a known cause or an unknown cause, both of them need to be evaluated. It's, it's the collaboration between the patient talking to the oncologist, the oncologist talking to the ophthalmologist that really will get you the best care and maybe discover new things that are happening to you that could help other people or have other people's experience help you because they already know that that's how it works. Excellent. And, and Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add to that? Sure. This is a, um, a topic that spans just about every kind of cancer and every kind of treatment all over the United States these days it is somewhat different in other countries where there may be a national health insurance with a unified health record. 
Um, but we w could have really interesting discussions over a cup of coffee or tea or whether it's fair for patients and families to be the ones that carry information back and forth, um, especially making sure that that, can, that information is correct. Um, it, it may not be the best way to proceed, but because of our mixed system of many different types of electronic health records uh, that often do not talk to each other despite the best intentions when the system was designed that they would, um, patients and families are often the conduits of highly technical information between their physician's offices, whether they are in the same building or they're across town or in different cities. Um, and it, it really brings up a good point. And if there's information that you need as a patient or family member that need to be uh, brought to another physician or another provider that is treating the patient, have someone in the first office write it down. If possible, type it out because everybody knows our handwriting is not great, uh, especially when we're rushed, but have them write the information down, whether it's blood test values or specific questions, because as um, everybody knows, this stuff can get awfully complicated and um, a, a misspelled word can mean a miscommunication. Um, this may not be fair, but that's the situation that we're in, and carrying the right and correct information back and forth is critical to getting coordinated care when the electronics are not up to doing that for us all. Excellent. Thank you. That's really, these are really uh, critically uh, significant issues. And, and I think for many people, and I, I'm going to ask um, both Dr. Marr and Dr. Fleischman to comment on this, for many people they may not see their health providers in the same institution. So their ophthalmologist may be in one institution and their oncologist may be in another. Is that, is that something that you see a lot of? Is that pretty standard that these may not be in the same institution so there isn't even that kind of institutional, like right there in the same building? I can start off with that. Yes, sure. The, sometimes everybody is part of the same system even though they may, they may not be in the same building or in the same town. Um, I, I understand this is really um, an unnecessary mix-up that we're all living in, but um, there are many cancer treatment networks that not only span cities, but states. Um, there could be a, uh, a large network of cancer centers that all operate as one, with one of their facilities across state lines or 10 states away. <laughs> and if, if that's the case, they most often share a medical record and the carrying back and forth is not necessary. And even in your city or your town, the two people whose offices may be a block or two away may be part of the same system or may be part of two competing systems. And that's when knowing that um, will help you figure out how you, if you need to carry information back and forth and how. And Dr. Marr, do you want to comment as well? Yeah, I, I have the experience of kind of working in a big uh, multidiscipline section and as an ocular oncologist, I deal with multiple people from all over the world in many different states. And just like Dr. Fleischman said, it's, it's important that 
as a, as a physician, I communicate to all my other colleagues that share these patients what's going on with them. So I try to be very good about sending pertinent records. And you know, if someone's doing a clinical trial with me, but still have a, has an ophthalmologist or oncologist in Texas or somewhere else in, uh, in the country, that that I send a letter, I update them, I. You know, text or call them on the phone if there's something emergent. I think it's really important that you make sure that your doctors are good at communicating, especially if you're traveling in different uh, areas or even within different systems. Sometimes if you're um, proactive, you can get them to communicate much better. Um, uh, it's, but it, it's doable and it happens a lot um, and it's, it can be successful. Excellent. Thank you. And um we have um, another question in front of our online participants, um, and um, I'm going to Dr. Marr and then Dr. Fleischman as well. Um, could you please address the effects on the eyes from aromatase inhibitors, um, breast cancer patient requesting asking that information? So, Dr. Fleischman, you want to start with that one? Or? Sure, I, I can do that. Um, aromatase inhibitors are very effective treatments that actually reduce the amount of estrogen that your body has available, uh, which is really important once um, breast cancer is involved, and even there are some other cancers that are involved with estrogen as well. Um, the, the aromatase inhibitors lower your estrogen, and many women will tell us, I'm already menopausal, can I have less estrogen? And the answer is yes. Um, and they can lower it even more, which reduces the chance of a recurrence of the breast cancer. If you think about what happens, what happened in your body by the, when your periods were starting, let's say between 10 and 14, depending upon a variety of factors, your body got stronger and smarter, your skin got better, your muscles got stronger, your hair got better, and all that happens in reverse. So often the things that happen from aromatase inhibitors, a wide variety of them apart from the eye, are because you're missing the estrogen that you've had since you were a young teenager that you've gotten used to and can do wonderful things. Um, but the dryness and the fatigue and many of the other factors are because the estrogen is even lower than it has uh, come to be because of a, a natural menopause. Um, so the, the dryness is, is very common, but it's one of a constellation of symptoms that happens from the lack of estrogen, not necessarily the medicine itself. Excellent. And so, um, so there might be dry eyes or dry uh, other kinds of symptoms that would affect the eyes, or not necessarily. Yeah, dry eyes, dry skin, thinning hair. Um, muscles that just don't just seem as strong as they used to be. Um, drier nails. You name it. So for dry eyes, Dr. Barr. Um, yeah, but I've had experience with just uh, the, the the most common one in, in my practice is just dry eyes, complaints from it. And then to purchase, the, there are all the different products out there that you've mentioned that people can. Yeah. Okay. And is there something about them being, you may have said this, preservative-free, does that make a difference or doesn't make a difference? or? If you're using artificial cheers frequently, more than say four or five times a day, then um, or if you have a sensitivity to a preservative, um, then preservative-free ones are are better because they don't have the preservatives. And some of the some people have a, a specific sensitivity to preservatives. Some people aren't bothered by them at all. But I would probably try the 
uh, if you're not using them super common, try the, the regular ones. And if that, they become irritating or you're increasing your frequency, switch to the preservative-free. Or if you're just very sensitive and that that kind of person, then just start with the preservative-free tears. Thank you. And we have a question now from one of our um, um, online participants. And I'll start with Dr. Fleischman. When oncologists receive results of an ophthalmic exam from a patient, do they typically understand how the results might affect the dosing treatment recommendations for patients? If not, where do oncologists go to understand? Do you want well, to start good with question. that one? <laughs> uh, it, it goes back to one of our basic principles of collaboration. Um, in that if I, I got a report from anybody that I didn't understand, I'd try to pick up the phone and call and have a few minutes on the phone. And it often takes a few seconds or a few minutes to make sure that uh, subspecialty languages that we're both speaking are understandable to each other. This is what's called really good care. Um, I would hate for somebody, any provider in any specialty working anywhere to get a report from a consultant that they asked for that they didn't understand and, and didn't have the opportunity to ask questions. Excellent. And Dr. Mar, do you want to comment as well? Or? No, I think that, that mm -hmm. I agree with that. Okay. And, and a question from one of our online participants, Dr. Mar. Um, my doctor rec mentioned how chemotherapy can suppress my immune system and more susceptible to infection, making me more susceptible to infections. Is there anything I can do to reduce the risk of getting eye infections? I think maintaining a good ocular surface it will protect you, uh, and that's the best you can do for the external uh, portions of the eye. Um, and so if your eyes are prone to be dry, use artificial tears. Um, if you have blepharitis, make sure you can keep the eyelash areas clean. Um, the, don't try to scratch or rub your eyes aggressively. Wash your hands before you do any manipulation with the eyes. All those things are kind of good tips. And then just be aware of those symptoms that I spoke about. If you have excessive uh, colored mucus or discharge or pain or light sensitivity, that you, that you see someone quickly. Excellent. Um, and Dr. Fleischman, do you want anything to that? I think that covers it. Okay, excellent. Um, so this is um, another question um, for uh, for Dr. Um, Marr. I have become increasingly sensitive to light and have started wearing sunglasses outdoors. I don't want to walk around my office wearing sunglasses indoors. Is there anything I can do in terms of light sensitivity indoors? Anything you could suggest, Dr. Mara? Yeah, um, those are always, it's always tough. And, you know, some really dry eyes are sensitive to light and air and everything. So if you're not treating your dry eye or if your dry eye is one of the things that are contributing to the to the um, light sensitivity, then I would try to address that. But sometimes it's not related to that completely, and it can be other reasons. Um you know, I think uh, a lighter tin, uh, tinted uh, indoor glass, if you're really sensitive, may help. That's not as obvious as a, a pair of really dark glasses, but may ease a little bit on, on uh, the, the, the sensitivity. Or just try to adjust your ambient room light, if it's acceptable in, in the area that you worked, uh, to try to not stimulate that light sensitivity effect. I don't know, Dr. Fleischman, have any other suggestions on that? 
Oh, I'll come up with another question, though. Okay. <laughs> would, would the lenses that change color between uh, inside and outside be helpful to someone in that situation? Well, it would be if, when they're going outside, but those are usually UV triggered, and so indoors, if it's really bright, they won't get darker. Uh, ah, okay. And in those situations, then they probably wouldn't benefit too much inside. It would be nice if they made kind of a nice uh, shading, depending on the amount of light that's there. But most of those coatings are more outside light and sun uh, protective shading. Great. So people shouldn't spend a lot of money on that for this purpose. They probably won't work. Correct. Okay, great. <laughs> I've noticed that some people actually have like a lamp in their office, and they may not be able to turn off the incandescent. Does that, those things like that actually somehow help? Or they actually, I mean, it's still creating light, but it's a different type of, like just a light bulb yeah. lamp. Does that make no. a difference, or do those things not matter? No, it's very important because different colors or textures or temperatures of light affect people differently, and even just the frequency of the flashing of incandescent bulbs versus LED bulbs versus. Um, uh, complex fluorescence, they all affect people, you know, differently. And if you find something that works for you, I think that you should maximize it, whether that be having a small light or a little extra light or a dimmable light, maybe really make a difference in your daily daily activities to make you comfortable. Excellent. These are really amazing questions and really uh, it's such an uh, important topics when you think about it and how it affects one's quality of life, actually. These are really incredibly important. Um, I just, uh, very excellent questions and, and a great team of, of uh, responders to the questions as well. So, um, um, well, We're biased. We think the eyes are the best part of everything. <laughs> they are. Well, they are. They're the window to the world, aren't they? They kind of are, are probably they're better things to say without that, but it's so important to be able to be able to see and have your eye vision changes. It's so important to people to try to fix it or... So what do you think, Dr. Tomorrow? What, what do you hear a lot? Uh, I, I I believe that solely, but I'm very biased. I think <laughs> eyes are very important. Well, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all um, on target with that. Um, let's just see. Um, So the, this is a, a good question here. Um, so how, this um, uh, from one of our online participants, how long before going back to the ophthalmologist to get the eye check again? So um, how how often should one be seeing one's ophthalmologist? Dr. Moore. Yeah, if you're if you're um, a cancer patient, I always do uh, at minimal once a year. And if you have any active eye problems, then it increases from that in frequency, but I, I would say once a year is a reasonable. If you're asymptomatic, just a, a checkup once a year, I think it's good. As long as your insurance will let you do it, I think it's it's prudent. So if we did have a question from one of our participants here um, about coverage. Actually, will Medicare pay for ophthalmic visit um, exam? Does, um, I, I have no idea. Okay, I know a little bit about this. Yeah. As far as I know, <laughs> Medicare won't pay for a um, sort of a, a, a just checking your visual acuity. Um, I, I don't believe unless things have changed faster than I know about them. But a visit for to a, um, an ophthalmologist for an eye exam, especially during chemotherapy or radiation therapy, in my lifetime of practicing, I've never heard that been denied. 
It's just the, the visual acuity, the sharpness of your vision when everything is fine, and th those are the kinds of things that Medicare may not uh, cover. But but actually, the actually visiting around symptoms or a symptom situation that you're seeing that you're ophthalmologist yeah. for that would be really um, a, a, would have a diagnostic code or something. Is what you're saying. Right, and and that has to be like you know the devil's in the details. That has to be uh, listed and coded properly by the ophthalmologist's office. But they know how to do that. <laughs> so actually, that would be a good for anyone on the call who really um, is undergoing chemotherapy treatments and has something going on with their eyes to really um, call the office and really go through that with them. Um, also, if, um, and also you can talk to one of our staff here in terms of, you know, how to phrase things, what to say, because in, indeed it is important. Uh, the language matters, and um, it sounds like most of the questions we have here are questions that would require um, some, um, you know, some degree of assessment of the eye. Is that correct, Dr. Mo Dr. Morrow, that you're really talking yeah, about? Yeah, no, I think that if you have a symptom or something that, that's concerning, you make that clear, and then the ophthalmologist will code it appropriately. So it's not like you, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just showing up, and they bill you as a well, as a uh, like a refraction or a, a routine exam. And also there may be funds available for covering um, eye issues that um, hospitals may have available. Or, so I think it's important to really um, not throw up your hands and think, oh, you know, I won't be able to get this done. I think it's worth having a conversation with the staff at Cancer Care, with, um, and there are many other nonprofit organizations to talk to, but just to see, okay, I have to have this done. Um, I'm worried about cost. How do I handle that? So it might be a good thing just to kind of see what's available out there because there are resources sometimes that might not be as well known, um, you know, to each of you that um, are out there and could be of help to you. We know. I know we could go on all afternoon, but I realize um, that wow, it's <laughs> time goes by quickly when you're having great conversation and great questions. I want to thank our speakers. You've been just phenomenal. Uh, it's been an amazing call. And we've been, although we've been doing this program for many years, this has really, I have to say, been the best ever. I have to say. So thank you for this. Um, and we will hope we'll look forward to doing one, another one. And I want to thank all of our participants um, who asked such great questions, both on the telephone and online. It really um, adds to the call, allows our speakers to you know, elaborate on, on things that are really relevant to each of you and, and of concern. And um, I want to remind all of you that I know you, many of you are still in queue and have questions, so I did say at the end of the call that we would address your questions. So if you have any questions still outstanding, I always recommend that people contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237 and their website, um, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature where you can talk with one of their information specialists. And by the way, at the end of the call, you'll be getting um, any resource that we mentioned during the call that we've sent you ahead of time. Um, you'll be getting an evaluation, but the evaluation isn't just an evaluation. It also includes for all of you resources that you might be able to um, to have, um, and that would be um, you know really helpful for you to have these the resources. Um, and um, as well, um, so that's a, that's a wonderful resource. I, we also want you to be sure to speak to your healthcare team. We would not want to sidestep them in any way, and that includes your eye care provider, your ophthalmologist, as well as your oncologist um, or your hematologist oncologist who's treating you, um, and that they actually talk to each other about any concerns. I think we've you've heard that on the call throughout. That's really important. Most importantly, as we conclude the call, we don't want any one of you to feel you're alone. We want you to now know that you are 
part of a huge support system, both from Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations that exist out there that you have um, um, the materials that you've been sent to, uh, from us and we'll be sending more to you as well, um, that, that you aren't. I know that many of you feel alone sometimes, and we want you to know that you're now part of really a lot of resources that you can access. And um, I know it won't, may always take away your sense of feeling alone, but I think that some of these resources actually can assist you and, and, and help you to troubleshoot um, issues that you may be struggling with and, and, and co coping with. And lastly, I just want to mention that we do have a uh, a meditation app on our website, and lots of people find it helpful. It's free, and it uh, just uh, has some meditation and relaxation exercises that people find helpful, so I just want to mention that. And I look forward to your participating on our future programs, and thank you all for being on the call today. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day. <laughs>